Hello and welcome to another episode of Unauthorized Disclosure. I am one of your hosts, Rania Kalik, and I'm joined by the show's other host, Kevin Gastola. Hey, Kevin. Hey, Rania. So um, before we get into all the stuff that we're going to talk about today, Kevin, I wanted to make an announcement um, that I thought would be good to announce on the show uh, for the first time. Um, are you ready for this? Yeah, I'm ready. All right. So I just I want everyone who's listening to know that I have decided to launch an exploratory committee uh, to determine whether I should launch an exploratory committee committee to determine whether um, I should consider uh, running for president in 2020. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and do you do you have a commercial with like a, like a draft pack? Yes, within is- the next within the next couple of days, my team will be releasing a not a commercial. Um, we'll actually be doing an Instagram live where I'll be making couscous um, <laughs> while uh, perhaps drinking a glass of wine or maybe even a beer. Mm-hmm. Um, and talking to you, uh, to the people mm-hmm. on Instagram. You, so just keep your eyes peeled. Do, do you have newfound musical talent that you'll be sharing to catapult yourself to political success? Okay, now you lost me. Did someone do that? <laughs> well, Did I someone mean, do that? I mean, that's or are we a, talking about Ocasio Cortez's dance? No, I mean Beto. Because I can whole, dance. I can dance. Uh, Beto's whole thing is that he can play in a band. Oh, okay. I, see. I did used to play the violin, but what I was going to do was um, I was planning to go to the eye doctor uh, and perhaps live stream my appointment um, to uh, demonstrate to the people the importance of um, eye care. You're getting you're uh, getting LASIK is what you meant to tell yeah. us. And I'm getting LASIK on Instagram live. Um, <laughs> uh, and while I'm getting LASIK, I will be discussing my platform and agenda for 2020. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, is this a shit show or what? I feel like we're in like the middle of a shit show. Like, the Democratic primary is going to be one big circus. It's full on spectacle, and we have. I, I'm looking at my calendar, and today is January 18th, but that's not January 18th, 2020. It's January 18th, 2019. Yeah, and this actually all started in 2018, um, the last couple months, but now it's really taken off where like every week you have even more, actually in the last week, uh, three people have announced they're running for president in 2020 and one announced, I mean, did Elizabeth Warren officially announce or did she just announce she is, I think she just announced she was forming an exploratory committee. This is what's really crazy about Like, what the fuck does that mean that you're forming an exploratory committee? Like, why would you announce that? I'd say that almost every candidate has in some form indicated that they're running for president, but that really wasn't the official announcement, which is so weird. I think the only people who officially announced are is like Julian Castro and Kirsten Gillibrand who like officially, officially announced in like an official capacity with like a video of some sort and like a, a press conference. Actually, I don't know if Kirsten Kirsten Gillibrand had a press conference. I think she just, like, went on Colbert or something. Um, Tulsi Gabbard announced on Van Jones, but she said she would be releasing a statement, like, soon about her run. I don't know if she's done that yet. Yeah, and that's that's still, like, I just don't get it. I mean, once you say that you're going to run, that's the announcement that you're running for president. (laughs) Yeah, it should be. But, but no, but, like, what we really do want to talk about, though, on this show – the majority of this episode is going to be about the reactions to the people running. Um, there's lots of maliciousness involved. 
Um, and there's also a lot of double standards involved uh, from characters that were used to being shitty, but then also some surprising elements. Um, we want to talk a bit about Tulsi Gabbard. I know that's been kind of a hot topic on the left this past week. Uh, both Kevin and I have been engaging in that. And very divisive. Um, I mean, you very, might... Very, very much so. You might, you might lose some of your lefty friends over this because you took some position that they they can't handle so well what's pissing me off is like i understand like arguing with like centrists you know like the corporate wing of the democratic party types who are going to come after you but what i'm getting really really sick of is people on the left um just like the level of personal attacks that are becoming like the norm around this issue with regard to tulsi it's like either you agree with me or you're a bad person, I'm going to ostracize and shame you and unfollow you and not be your friend anymore. Like, it just feels really immature and childish. You don't have to like Tulsi Gabbard, but maybe we should, I mean, maybe we should just go straight into that, I don't know, but like, you don't have to like her. There, there are legitimate criticisms of her. I have some criticisms of her myself, but I think the level of which she's been attacked with, like just the extent of the attacks, um, the extent of the hostility, is there isn't there's no equivalence to it for any other candidate who especially other candidates who I think have way worse records than Tulsi does. Well, I just think that this is a long conversation that I'd like to let run its course, but I don't want to not get to a couple of topics that our patrons who, who support us uh, mentioned that they, they would like to hear some of our thoughts on for this week. So I just would like to take maybe like ten. Um, or so minutes on, on these two topics and then come back to having a longer conversation about the, uh, the 2020 primary and, and the different reactions and how the media has been covering these candidates because that seems like something that has become really important to address. We didn't talk about it last week because we were focused with Aaron on Russia and uh, the Russia investigation. And so... Fair enough. So Let's do that. Let's Talk so, about listener so what, I, so what um, we decided to do was go out to our patrons, um, and we have 192 of you right now. Thank you. Uh, and we're trying to get to 200 patrons. Um, and again, we're on patreon.com backslash unauthorized disclosure. I know there's eight of you out there. And we're trying to like... get there. We have plans uh, that we would like to put in motion for a very special show. And once we get to that 200, uh, we will do it for um, primarily our patrons, but other people who are regular listeners will benefit as well. Uh, you'll eventually get to hear uh, what we put together. So we asked our patrons for some of their thoughts. Uh, since it was just going to be Rania and me talking for this second episode, uh, we wanted to know if there was anything you wanted us to address. And we've got some of your comments. And if we don't get to them this week, we'll come back to them in the next few weeks. But what we thought we wanted to do is uh, give an update on Syria. Uh, we had Hannah who asked us uh, for, uh, I don't know if I could accurately represent the comment the way it's written, but it basically is like this, Syria heart. That's awesome. <laughs> so um, that's, that's, or maybe I need more enthusiasm, Syria. Uh, so that was Hannah and um, then Fionn said uh, it would be great to hear your insight on what's going on in northern Syria uh, she's someone and everyone else saw the reports of US troops that were uh, killed 
in part of northern Syria in the past week. Uh, so anyways, uh, I think just for them, if there's anything you wanted to add, uh, Mohammed also mentions the bombing of U.S. troops in Syria and the safe zone agreement between U.S. and Turkey in northern Syria after the pullout. There's a lot to get into, but I don't know. Rania, anything that you want to talk about for just a few minutes as to where we're at with Syria right now? Well, it's a little bit conflicting what's happening in Syria. You've got a lot of like conflicting reports about what's coming out of the Trump administration. Um, and honestly, like I, 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 I hate to like admit this, but I've been like kind of my head's been into the Democratic primary. I haven't been as focused as I should be. But I will say this, I mean, the U.S. has started to reduce its presence. Um, and I really find it fascinating that whenever something goes wrong, like whenever something uh, happens where like the U.S. is either withdrawing or is like losing, ISIS comes in and swoops in and like saves the day. And what I mean by that is ISIS did launch an attack and killed, I believe, four U.S. service members in Syria. And now every media outlet is like, oh, well, this is why we can't leave Syria. Uh, because ISIS, is, they heard we were leaving and they bombed us. And it's like, wow, it's amazing. ISIS just gave you like exactly what you want to happen to justify staying there forever, indefinitely. Anyways, I just find it really, uh, really, really, really like uh, interesting how, how ISIS seems to always be helping the US war industry. <laughs> I think uh, we'll come back to this uh, because it's you know, yeah, we, it doesn't go away. And, and also, I think you'll probably hear about Syria later in the show uh, just because uh, it comes up in the context of the 2020 primary race with the way people are um, attacking disingenuously the <gasps> campaign of Tulsi Gabbard. But we don't have to talk about that just yet. Right. But also, I really like when we when I do talk about Syria, I don't like to just make like I just don't I don't want to like bullshit my analysis. I'd like to make like grounded analysis. And I think it would be better um, to even have a, more of a show revolving around that issue specifically. Yeah. Um, rather than just like a couple comments here and there. But thanks for putting it back on our radar. And yeah. we will come back to that topic. So we also had um, a request for some discussion of what's happening in Venezuela. Uh, so I, I can provide just a little bit of detail because I was curious myself as to what's going on with the Venezuelan opposition. So uh, Mohammed pointed out that Brazilian President Bolsonaro, the, the fascist who just took over in Brazil, um, and has ties and links to the historic military dictatorship that was there. Uh, they support the Venezuela opposition. Um, he does. And then uh, we also had a comment from Aaron who uh, asked, uh, my main question is about Venezuela. A lot of people say the government is illegitimate and even leftists say that they do not support Maduro. I want to know the circumstances of the election and Aaron's referring to what happened on May 20th last year. How many people voted? Did the opposition boycott again? Was there a third party observer? Did the government cheat in any way? Because if the Venezuelans did elect Maduro for real, then that's important information. You can criticize Maduro and his government all you want, but as leftists, we should uphold the right of Venezuelans to decide for themselves. And if all you do is denounce and not support the elected leadership without any other context, then you are just doing the legwork of the U.S. State Department. But I first 
need to know what actually happened last week. I really don't know where to look. Maybe if you know info or have a guest or friend that can give context. And uh, yeah, uh, Aaron and others, it's very difficult to know exactly what's going on in Venezuela. I mean, I, I think Ronnie and I both share the same feeling that it's very difficult to know what's happening on the ground in Venezuela because what we mostly get is a center-right or entirely right-wing press uh, that, that is covering the developments on the ground. Well, and it's difficult because it's like not like there's a bunch of reporters there that we can look to who are on the ground to tell us what's happening in Venezuela. I don't speak or read Spanish. Um, so it's like not like we can refer to local media, right? Um, and so we're just like looking to outlets in the U.S. that cover this, and they typically cover it in a way, including, unfortunately, uh, a lot of leftist outlets, uh, they cover it in such a way where it's like plays into the State Department narrative, right? Yeah. And so we don't really know what's going on. Um, and I, I feel the same exact frustration. I'm not like an expert on Venezuela. I've never been to Venezuela. Um, so I can't speak on it from like an on the ground perspective. Um, and, and, and I just know I'm being lied to constantly. Uh, but I can't exactly like counter any of those lies because it's like I don't even know where to look. I mean, one of the few sources there is to look to is Venezuela analysis. But other than that, you know, I get really lost and frustrated with that issue as well. I just know the U.S. is fucking around and causing a massive, like, migration crisis in Venezuela because the economy is destroyed. Yeah. Um, but I don't even really know how to talk about that effectively or accurately. I'll say that uh, Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting uh, did a piece after the election, and it was written um, by the author of Bad News from Venezuela, 20 Years of Fake News and Misreporting, uh, and his name is Alan McLeod. And what he highlighted was this dynamic that produces coverage that basically can't be trusted. Uh, he said, as I detailed, there have been enormous cuts to foreign reporting leading to a situation where only a tiny cadre of journalists create the news we hear from other countries. So he's talking about the cutbacks to foreign uh, correspondents and, and these bureaus that typically have covered uh, various parts of the world outside of the United States. So this is the impact on Americans. Media copy and paste from news organizations like Reuters and Associated Press, which themselves employ many cheaper local journalists. Why would that be a problem? He says in Venezuela, these journalists are not neutral actors, but come from the highly partisan local media affiliated with the opposition leading to a situation where Western newsrooms see themselves as an ideological spearhead against Maduro, quote, the resistance to the government. That's part of the dynamic. So what, what, what is happening? So I had this question myself, and I decided to put together a piece, and I won't claim to have the full truth of what's going on in Venezuela in the last couple weeks, but it is pretty clear to me that there is some kind of a slow-motion right-wing coup that is unfolding in Venezuela. And you should be able to deduce that just by looking at the headlines that are coming out of the Associated Press. I mean, even if we accept that those, or, or, or even if we view that those are right-wing reports on the country, the way in which they are report, reporting developments, it's clear that this is a coup attempt that's underway. Because what's happening is uh, there is a man named Juan Guaido, of the Popular Will Party in Venezuela, and he was elected to lead 
the National Assembly, which is their congressional body. And he said on January 11th that he was ready to replace Maduro. And this came one day after Maduro took the oath of office uh, to be the president. And then on January 15th, this body, the Congress in Venezuela, called Maduro's presidency illegitimate, and it passed a resolution that said they no longer believe Maduro has any legal authority. So they're ready to launch into motion this process of uh, using the Constitution to claim legitimacy in order to uh, be president. Guaido says that he believes he could be an interim president in the country uh, while the country um, is uh, waiting to call elections. Um, but he needs the backing from the citizens in order to make this a reality. He'll never get that. Uh, yeah, and a and, uh, key dynamic in the country is that uh, before we get to where the Trump administration is on all of this, which is extremely important, but the key thing is that the military does not support any of the right-wing opposition as far as, like, if you look at it institutionally, they fully back Maduro, and not necessarily because they like how Maduro is running the country, but because Maduro is the person who has been elected to carry out the vision and ideas of Hugo Chavez, and so they're sticking with him because that's their loyalty. That's what they're They're loyal to the project that was set in motion by Hugo Chavez over the last 15 to 20 years. You've got the Trump administration coming out. You got John Bolton, National Security Advisor. You've got Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. You've got Vice President Mike Pence, who's been one of the like most out front on Venezuela in the last year to two years on this, making very bold statements. Um, Donald Trump hasn't particularly said anything about what's happened in the last couple of weeks, but uh, these people are fully backing what Guaido is doing and what is happening with the right-wing opposition. There's apparently a day of protest planned in uh, on January 23rd, uh, and it's probably going to look a lot like the violent protests we've seen in 2014 and 2017, where they have what are the, um, I think you say Garimba or, or, or Guarimba, and uh, these are like violent uh, barricades where they set uh, tires on fire and uh, they pour oil uh, and they put boulders in the way of uh, pedestrian or bicycle or motorcycle or car or vehicle, any vehicle traffic, any movement. They uh, block transportation um, and they're using this in a way to grind parts of the city to a halt and force regime change. That's how, that's what they do. Um, and this guy, Guaido, who you know, you've probably never heard of, Rania, I had never heard of him. Uh, most of the world has never heard of this guy, but he doesn't just come from anywhere. Uh, you maybe might have suspected that he has some kind of link to uh, Leopoldo Lopez. Who, no way, who, of course. <laughs> who is uh, treated as a political prisoner by the likes of Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International and much of... Uh, of the West, but in fact is someone who's involved in, in the coup that happened um, uh, in April 2002 against Chavez. Uh, he actually 
was involved in carrying out an illegal detention of the interior minister in 2002 and on that day of the coup. So it was part of the team that was going to round up officials so that the uh, basically these neoliberals could take over the country against Chavez. But Chavez survived. Um, he was able to get back control of the country in uh, two days. And so this is Guaido. He's, um, he, he talks apparently with Lopez about half a dozen times each day. And not a single speech or move isn't coordinated with Lopez first. That's what AP reported. So, hmm. and this is a guy who in 2014, when they were having these violent protests, he was charged with arson, public incitement, and conspiracy. And again, we're talking about actions that if they were happening in the U.S., they would not be allowed. I mean, even um, a former opposition activist. So, so there's this really great piece. I'll just say for further reading. Um, you, I'll share my piece with the unauthorized disclosure account. But what I found really useful is back in 2015, Roberto Lovato did a piece uh, with support from the Nation Institute called The Making of Leopoldo Lopez. And since Lopez is still a figure who has a lot of influence and seems to be working through uh, Guaido, um, I think uh, this is really important. So uh, this former opposition activist is quoted in the piece, and it says, In the United States, what's happening now in Venezuela would not have happened and won't happen. No one would think to burn cars or tires, set fire to a street leading up to the White House, because the punishment would be truly serious. Here, there are yes. barricades called garimbas, where they found armaments for war, where they found Molotov cocktails. <clears throat> and uh, that's what's going on. That was what's going on. Yeah, no, I mean, it's uh, it's really, really outrageous, like, the way that, I mean, we've covered it on the show before, we've had people on to talk about it, but, the, I mean, the coverage of Venezuela is so distorted and so absurd, and, I mean, Western human rights groups, like, U.S. human rights groups are always pro-right-wingers in Venezuela, and what's sad is, like, you know, the coverage of Venezuela, even in places like Jacobin, sucks. Like, it's so bad. It's like what the U.S. has been doing to Venezuela the past like two decades at this point, um, nearly two decades, has been to try and overthrow the government. And it's destroyed the country in the process. And then it blames like the left wing in the country for destroying it. And like nobody says anything. Everyone used to say stuff, but then like Hugo Chavez died, Maduro was elected to power. And uh, nobody likes Maduro. He doesn't have the same charisma as Hugo Chavez, whatever. Um, so like everyone's like, no, Maduro sucks. He's really authoritarian. But the reality is that like Maduro was elected and this guy whose name I'm already forgetting because that's how like, who, what's his name again? Guaido. The one who wants to be, Gua Guaido? Yeah. Okay. So this guy Guaido, uh, if I'm not mistaken, the Brazilian fascist leader Bolsonaro. Yes. As well as like the US uh, neocons have basically, um, said that they recognize him as a legitimate president of Venezuela. Yeah, and McCree. <laughs> and, and, and also Argentina has a center-right president now, Mauricio McCree. Um, and so that's one of the things that works against Venezuela. Oh, you've also seen um, Ecuador um, uh, through Moreno, um, because uh, Rafael Correa no longer is right. the leader. And so you've seen a change. We had what we was termed the pink tide, where... Uh, countries were moving left in Latin America. And that was all destroyed under Obama. Like that all started yeah. to slowly disintegrate under Obama because 
Actually, Obama had one of the worst uh, uh, policies in Latin America possible. Basically, it was supporting the right wing in each country. In some countries, they even overthrew governments like in Honduras um, and in Brazil as well. You know, we should really like we should we should devote an episode to like with, with like an expert because we're not experts. We should we should find someone really good to actually talk about um, everything that's happened in Latin America the past two decades, how we got where we are and how the Obama administration played a huge role in that. Nobody even like nobody even cried a little bit. Because it was Obama and anything like and Obama could do, we you know, whatever. And everybody still loved him. But um, Venezuela is really, really worse off because of the U.S. And none of that is ever discussed when we talk about like Latin America. None of that is ever discussed when we talk about people leaving their countries. U.S. policy, aside from overt like war policy, aside from like overtly funding death squads, aside or, or which the U.S. does covertly. That's not the right way to put it. But aside from like funding death squads, the U.S. has other ways that it supports the right wing in these countries. And we really should have somebody to come on and talk about it because um, it deserves more more time than and more expertise and analysis than what we can what we can give. So one last thing for Aaron, and then we'll be full 2020 primary for the rest of the show, which will either cause us to lose people or maybe we'll have people's attention. I don't know. It depends on if people really want to get into that. But but we do. So. Aaron, uh, just the quick thing about whether the election results were valid and and what they were like. So I had lower turnout. Part of it did have to do with the fact that the right-wing opposition in May of last year called for a boycott. What's incredible is that the opposition calls for the election. The government goes to the trouble of having the election. And then because they aren't able to get the right charismatic leader who can actually challenge Maduro because there's a fracture among the opposition between two or maybe even three people, then they back away and change their tactic to we're going to boycott the vote and not acknowledge that the process can work. Uh, and so, and then the U.S. supports that boycott. And before there were even any votes cast, everyone around the world, mostly in the West, though, were saying that this was going to be an illegitimate election. And uh, there are people on the ground, there were observers who saw the process, who said that they didn't see that. They didn't see the same thing. They saw people who are poor, who have benefited from the programs um, in Venezuela, who really want. And what you have is a backlash from the elites of this country who, who do not like what's going on. And uh, while not while the Trump administration refuses to recognize the election. And then I actually think that there's, I'll, I'll be clear here because some people always like get really angry. I'm not giving Obama a pass. I'm not sure. And I, I'm almost 99% certain that Obama would oppose uh, the election as well, would not re recognize it as legitimate either. So uh, the, the difference though is the zeal among the right wing who are running the government right now to engage in regime change even more because they are much more offended and opposed to socialism um, and, and, and do not care one lick about the fact that there is this history and legacy of dirty wars in Latin America because they come from that alliance of political people who were responsible for all of the carnage that happened 
in the 70s, 80s, and even earlier. And uh, and so, yeah, I don't know if there weren't, any, I, I'm not going to say there weren't any irregularities, but I just think that it was never a chance. Nobody was ever giving Venezuela a chance to just have this election. Right. Um, and I got to say, the idea of recognizing unelected people, unelected right-wingers, as the legitimate president um, is, like, about as authoritarian as it gets. Like, the U.S. I mean, it's just so obvious. Like, when the U.S. is like, we're supporting democracy in Venezuela. That said, we recognize the legitimacy of this unelected person to uh, the leader of the sovereign country. Like, it's just so fucking absurd. And no one says anything about it. Like, uh, you know, and this, maybe this is a good segue, like, into this other stuff we want to talk about. But I really feel like, We've talked about it on the show before, but it continues to frustrate me. The lack of concern about what the U.S. is doing in the global south all the time. There is really a lack of concern from the left. They don't seem to care. Like, I understand there's a lot of domestic policy priorities, like Medicare for all and, like, raising taxes on the wealthy. Those are important things, you know, free, like, dealing with student debt. You know, like, I want my student debt erased, and I'm happy if anybody's got that on their platform. Like, I understand these are important issues, too, but if we're really going to be, like, on the left, you've got to care about the rest of the world, you guys. You have to. I mean, for moral reasons, right? But also for, like, strategic reasons, you know? Like, you want Medicare for all. you got to care about all this money and resources we're putting into, like, dominating and being, like, the authoritarian of the world. And the reason I say that is because, I don't know, I, I, I think this is, like I said, a good segue because... Um, you know, we have people who are announcing that they're running for Demo for the Democratic Party. And look, here's my thing. You do not have to like Tulsi Gabbard. Like, you're, I'm not gonna, like, if you hate her, that's fine. I'm not here to endorse her. I'm not here to, like, you know, be her cheerleader. I, however, think it's perfectly, like, I think it's actually a net positive that she's running. Because even if you hate her, she talks about these things. She talks about U.S. wars. She actually, not only does she talk about U.S. wars and, and does she like vocally and loudly oppose uh, U.S. regime change in other countries, she is making that her platform. Like that is at the top of her platform. That, like the perpetual warfare state is the platform in opposing it is what she's running on. So even if you hate her, even if you have lots of criticisms of her, which there's lots to criticize, that alone is something to be like that, that that will be beneficial in the democratic primary for anyone who cares about like the issue of war because basically it's going to force the conversation you know and it's going to force the other politicians to demonstrate where they stand on these issues and to possibly even come out even more against war to try and compete with what she's saying so like i don't understand why what i just said is so controversial but saying that the last week since she announced she's running has, I mean, I've just been inundated with nothing but vitriol, including from the left. And I don't understand why. Like, again, you don't have to like her. You don't have to support her. But like, can we at least acknowledge that fact? Yeah. So I wrote a piece about Tulsi and I, I, I decided to cover Tulsi Gabbard's presidential announcement after I looked over the way in which the establishment press or corporate press, whichever you want to describe it, but I don't think it really matters in this case, most of the U.S. press were covering it in a way that was 
wholly disingenuous. It privileged smears that we've heard about her before. And then there was one that was fresh and new, which I think we can get into a little bit more. But I think we've talked before about uh, how Tulsi was attacked for the meeting she had with Bashar al-Assad in Syria. So that was dredged up again, and everyone was told she's an Assadist. Um, and so, uh, and then there were ridiculous headlines, like, you know, the one that really drove me off the edge and, and forced me to write something was, is Tulsi Gabbard 2020's Jill Stein? Or is Tulsi Gabbard going to be the Jill Stein of 2020? Which was enough for me to come unglued. I, like, that's, that's not respectable, responsible journalism. Nobody's going to learn a damn thing about why she declared her candidacy. And so I went about putting together a piece that looked at her record. But most importantly, I took three shows. Um, you've seen them. They were going around. But I took three shows that, where she had talked for more than an hour and was able to be in, uh, you know, either questioned or interrogated or able to share her full perspectives on a range of issues. I took a Sanders Institute interview that was about an hour. I took her appearance on Joe Rogan, and I took her appearance on Jimmy Dore. And these all happened. Uh, two of them happened in September, and then the one at the Sanders Institute in November of last year, in 2018. So these are closest to the announcement, um, and this is where I think she's at on a whole range of issues currently. So I thought it mattered. And then I included a mention of some of the positions she's had in the past. And I gave uh, a, a section where I mentioned some of the things that people don't like about her because she's had some positions that were right-wing conservative. There's been questions about her alliance and support for the Hindu nationalists, the, the right-wing nationalists in India. So I mentioned that. And because I don't go all in on smearing Tulsi and trying to do a whole performance piece about why the left shouldn't support Tulsi Gabbard or why she can't possibly be an anti-war candidate, I'm, I'm treated as um, like I'm committing some kind of crime against journalism and or I'm assumed to be like a booster for Tulsi. I, I never said I was going to vote for Tulsi. And I think that it's a huge mistake for any coverage that you read that you interpret as positive to be translated into, oh, that person is going to be who you vote for. That like you're a tribalist. You're going to be all Tulsi 2020. Yeah, like I the other day, that's similar to what happened to me. Like the other day, uh, Tulsi tweeted something like quoting Chomsky. And I was like, well, that's interesting, right? Like a Democratic, I think I tweeted something along the lines of here you have a Democratic presidential candidate uh, like quoting Chomsky, that's going to be, you know, 2020 is going to be really interesting. Like, I think that's a first. I made like an observation, but it was a pretty, I mean, it was just literally an observation based on a tweet. Right. And in response, it was like, why do you love Tulsi? Don't you know she's an Islamophobe? Like, why do you love somebody who likes torture? Why do you like, why are you supporting Tulsi? And it's like, where did I say I'm supporting her? Like, first of all, I literally just made an observation. <laughs> I mean, it's like, like why? Oh, like Rania wakes up in the morning and she all she can do is talk about how much she loves Tulsi. Like what? And then what I give it. And then I, people? I, I give it a headline: uh, likely to challenge the U.S. military-industrial complex. 
Uh, I give a, a, a there's there's a second headline that appears in search engines where it comes up as like she could be a rare anti-war voice or a rare anti-war Democrat. Um, and I, I base that on what she said about Syria, Yemen, Libya, her time in Iraq and what she thinks about the Iraq war now. Um, the fact that she doesn't want to escalate tensions with North Korea and sees diplomacy as an important step toward peace. She wants to permanently and for uh, after many decades end the Korean War officially once and for all. I, so I include all of those positions in my suggestion that she's an anti-war voice. But then I am told because she's probably not opposed to all wars that she can't be an anti-war voice i mean this is like this is what's crazy is in some cases it's, it's coming okay there, there's two sets of attacks on her one of them is coming from the center like the centrist sort of corporate wing of the democratic party and they hate her because of syria like they are focused on syria that's it they're just like she met with assad she's an assadist like that's pretty much their critique of her and they've also dredged up this stuff she said about um about like uh gay people from like 10 years ago. So Tulsi Gabbard grew up in a very socially conservative household. Her dad was kind of like a kooky guy who uh, ran like some cultish organization that was against gay marriage, that campaigned against gay marriage. And when she was a teenager, he like, she like promoted his cause. Um, that's not okay. But again, she grew up in a socially conservative household and apologized for that years ago and has like a perfect record on LGBTQ issues in Congress. And I think that's all, that's pretty much all that matters. Like she's apologized for it. Her positions changed as she had different life experiences. She evolved. And here's what I do like about Tulsi Gabbard. She does still have some positions I don't agree with, but I like her because in, in this respect, she's a bit like, she's like Bernie Sanders, where she's demonstrated that she's willing to listen and she's willing to change her mind and move to the left. Um, I think she's kind of demonstrated that most of her career. She, she, she used to be much more right-wing on a lot of issues. And she's moved to the rest, like left on those issues because of her own experiences. Like for example, she served, she served in the military and fought in the Iraq, like she went to Iraq during the invasion, the, you know, like an occupation of Iraq and that, and then she like came back with a different view of war. And she even, her reason for, for running for Congress in the first place, for, I think she first ran for like state house um, the state representative was because of what she saw in Iraq, because she was against these wars. Um, so I think she's somebody who, again, like she's demonstrated, she's willing to listen and she's willing to move to the left. And I think that that is a really good asset for the left. Again, I'm not saying we should all support her. I'm just saying like, there are good things about her. And I don't think it's wrong to like, be honest about that. Um, and we can talk about the criticisms. Like I do have some criticisms of, of her and we can talk about that. But like, I really do appreciate that she is willing to move. Um, on domestic policy, she has literally the same exact like identical platform as, as Bernie Sanders and Ocasio-Cortez. Um, you know, she supports Medicare for all, she supports raising the minimum wage. Uh, she supports like uh, workers, she supports um, like on social issues, she's supportive of like, of, uh, of like minority issues and stuff like that. Like she support, you know, she's, uh, on the economy, she's really great. She was like one of three representatives who voted against Pago. Like she, I mean, on domestic policy, she aligns exactly with like Bernie Sanders. And I think, you know, on foreign policy, I personally think she's actually a bit better than Sanders. Um, 
And the reason I say that is because, you know, she's against regime change wars and Sanders isn't necessarily against them. He voted for the intervention in Libya. That doesn't, to me, disqualify Sanders. Um, you know, I don't go around being like, well, Bernie Sanders voted for the intervention in Libya. Therefore, he's responsible for slave markets there. Therefore, he's pro-slavery, which is kind of like how they're skewing uh, Tulsi's record. I do think, though, like on foreign policy, there are some issues that do raise problems. Like, um, she did give an interview back in, like, I think 2014, where she gave a terrible answer on torture, like a really, really terrible answer, where she was like, asked, do you support torture or not? And her answer was something along the lines of, um, of like, well, I'm not sure, I'm still conflicted on this, you know, if there's a ticking time bomb scenario, which is just yeah. complete utter horseshit. And, and she said that she thought the CIA report was incomplete or that it was not done uh, She was basically like... Yeah, she was yeah, echoing like, Republicans. I'm sorry, Tulsi, but... Well, yeah, no, I'm sorry, Tulsi, but, like, we were... The U.S. was, like, was pumping food into people's assholes. Um, <laughs> it's true. Like, I'm so... No, like, it's like, fuck off. Like, that yeah. was a terrible answer, and she, like, she needs to be... She needs to be interrogated on that. Like she really does. Like that is that's a totally legitimate criticism. And yeah. I'm not like I'm not brushing that aside or whitewashing it at all. It's unacceptable in my opinion that that was her answer. That said, I suspect you know Tulsi again is somebody who's demonstrated that she is willing to listen and move to the left. And I suspect she has on that issue. I don't know for sure, but I'd love to see her be asked. Well, did like, any journalist least, did any journalist no. rather to ask her? No. No. Um, and I really, I really would like to see her given the opportunity. Like, I'd like to know where her positions are now. Um, another issue she's not, she's not good on is um, she, uh, Israel Palestine. Um, that said, like to be fair, and this is not again, I'm like, I'm not excusing it, but it's not like this is an issue that any other representatives are great on. Uh, but she did attend like a Christians United for Air, a Christians United for Israel conference, and she was a speaker alongside like Ted Cruz um, and like Rick Santorum, I think. Like she should answer for that. Um, that and she had she did like support uh, during the Gaza onslaught. She supported like a resolution basically back in 2014 basically accusing Palestinians of being human shields for Hamas. Like, that's disgusting to me, and I want to see her address that. That said, Elizabeth Warren has, has had a bad history on Israel-Palestine as well. Um, and, like, her record isn't any better. She, granted, she didn't speak at a Christian Senate for Israel conference, but, like, at the same time, like, Elizabeth Warren is also somebody who's demonstrated that she, I mean, she does have some wiggle room. She, I could see her moving with the progressive base of the party at least a little bit on Israel-Palestine. And I'm not going to write her off because she like, she, you know, she's been supportive of Israel in the past. I'm not going to write her off. I'd actually like to see her in 2019, now, not three years ago, address where she stands on this issue, just as I'd like to see Tulsi address that before I completely write her off. Um, and, there, and also, like, I would like to say, uh, if you consider, like, two years ago, I remember when Bernie Sanders first became like a really sense, like he was just attracting these huge rallies and started actually getting media attention back in, I think, 2015. I didn't like him at first. And, and the reason that I was like really um, hesitant to support him initially, even though I liked most of everything else he was saying, was because back in 2014, during the Gaza onslaught, when Israel was killing like 50 people a day, a war where like 500 children, over 500 Palestinian children, were killed by Israeli bombs. Um, there was a town hall that Bernie Sanders was doing in Vermont, and he was it. He was talking about some, you know, like issue that Bernie Sanders would talk about, probably some like worker-related issue. I don't know, some local like domestic issue. 
And his constituents, several of them, started demanding he say something about Gaza because they were really upset about all the people dying in Gaza. And Bernie Sanders shouted them down, defended Israel, said Israel has a right to self-defense. And like, basically, I think they got kicked out of his town hall. It was really disgusting the way he behaved. And that really stuck with me. And it took me a while to get over it. But one of the reasons I did is because we, I mean, instead of like just completely writing him off, you know, Bernie Sanders is somebody who listens to the base, like of the, you know, the Democratic, or I'm sorry, the progressive base, his progressive base, he listens to them. And he also had surrounded himself with people who had better positions on Palestine. And he learned and he evolved on that issue. And in 2016, during debates with Hillary Clinton in Brooklyn, of all places, he said something nobody else on a national platform, the Democratic primary has, I think, ever said. He said, Palestinians deserve dignity deserve to be treated with dignity and respect. And like, he got booed, I think. He got cheered, but he also got booed by half the audience. And he got a lot of flack for that. And so my point is, is like, you can't just write people off before you give them the chance to tell you what their platform is, especially if they're people who've demonstrated that they have, they lean progressive and they're willing to listen. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, does that make sense? Or am I being crazy? No, and, and I, can I add to that? Yeah. So. I, there's this representative in New York. I don't know if you saw the statement Sean Patrick Baloney put out, but he defended Tulsi, and he's a gay Congress member, and he said he's experienced discrimination firsthand and argued that those who work against equality carry that stain and must be held accountable. But he said and added, quote, I also understand how important it is that we encourage people to admit their error, grow, and evolve as much of the country has done over the last two decades. That is exactly what Tulsi Gabbard has done. She recognized the fault in her past views and the pain she was causing, and she has apologized. He called Gabbard a strong ally and close friend in Congress, and then said the LGBTQ community should not confuse forgiveness with weakness, nor substitute recrimination for healing. And I raise this point for two reasons. One, it seems like there is evidence, though we would probably need to do some more journalism on her past, that she was part of a cult while she was growing up, that she was indoctrinated into cultish belief system by her own father. Now, typically, our society would find it a story of redemption or a story of survival if someone escaped that and become, became a person who was... Uh, a better human being, and more tolerant of others. That's happened before. You've had people who leave the conservative right and come over to the liberal left who are celebrated because they abandon their uh, homophobia, their bigotry, or whatever was animating them as a right-winger. David Brock's actually one of them. I was going to say, I was <laughs> yeah. going to say, David Brock is a perfect example. And here's where like, the fun part comes in. is you know, If Tulsi Gabbard was cozy with Wall Street... If Tulsi Gabbard was hawkish when it came to intervention, that that would be the story people would they would love her. They would be they would be like it's a redemption story. Look at her. Look how she used to be so anti-gay, and now like she's just like loves like she's like got this like high rating in the LGBTQ community. She's got great ratings from like uh, pro-choicers. You know she's great on all these social issues. Like Tulsi's really one of a kind. That that would be the narrative around her if not for the fact that she also um, like stepped step down from her position as like a chair at the DNC uh, to support Bernie Sanders. Um, 
And okay, so the other, I, I do want to say there's another issue that people keep raising, <laughs> which I actually like agreed with before, but now I don't know if I agree. I think it's a bit of an exaggeration that Tulsi is pro Modi and pro um, <laughs> pro like Hindu nationalism in India and pro BJP, which is um, the Hindu nationalist party uh, in India. And um, I initially believed that to be true, but I now believe that to be an exaggeration. Um, and I think it's actually something she's being uh, accused of even more harshly. Part of it is because she's also like a, a Hindu convert. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's being thrown against her. But from what I can tell, actually looking at the evidence, I don't think Tulsi explicitly supports Hindu nationalism. I don't think she's good on this issue. I think she should be questioned on it. However, it does seem as though she has distanced herself uh, from these like right wing, um, like Hindu nationalists. A lot of them are Democrats, by the way, in the U.S. Uh, but it's a community that supported her because she's Hindu. Um, and that as that people in this community in the U.S. have given her money. And, and because of this, she's been called like pro-Hindu nationalist. But I can't actually find any statements where she's like pro-Hindu nationalist. If anything, it's the opposite. She seems to be against injecting or against commenting like um, on India's internal politics. Maybe that's not a good answer. Maybe like I, I mean, maybe she actually should answer better than that. But I just can't find any evidence that she's actually explicitly pro-Modi. She did meet with him, but she's also met with other world leaders, um, and, and, and other than Assad. Um, I believe she even met with the leader of Japan at one point. Uh, and she's also met with opposition figures in India um, and taken photos with them and stuff like that. So I just don't think it's fair the way people are characterizing her as like a lover of Modi. Um, Again, I think her, and I, I also think it's interesting that suddenly all these people have a position on Indian politics that we've never talked about it before. <laughs> um, but no, but I mean, I think it is fair to question her on that because of where people in the U.S. she's taken money from. I think it's absolutely fair to question her on that, but I don't think it's right to, like, make these exaggerated claims that Tulsi Gabbard is, like, supportive of, of Hindu nationalists. I just don't see evidence of that. I, there's, um, I mean, there's two ways to react to that. I mean, yes, she... she should have to answer for concerns that are raised. But I also question the people who are raising these issues with how she supports right-wing nationalists in India because they are usually journalists who don't come from outlets that are regularly covering this. I mean, unless you're Arundhati Roy, you probably couldn't tell people what's going on in India with right-wing fundamentalism in the country. Um, and so, so maybe, you know, you're, maybe, you know, what's been written. Um, but, uh, the other thing that's important is I, I think I want to live in a political system where people are allowed to evolve. And I think we have to learn to accept that because, uh, part of the, uh, campaign process for, which now takes two years. So we have plenty of time to do this. Part of it needs to be. Did these candidates evolve from their pasts if they've moved left? Because, because we have a whole record, um, and we're always going to have it now since technology has become so ubiquitous. And with social media and everything, and you can tell what people were thinking 10, 15, and 20 years ago in some cases if they had presences on the internet. And so you need to be able to interrogate and question them and find out genuinely if they've changed and I just say that from looking at what happened with the 2016 Sanders campaign, it seems like she went through a fundamental transformation politically. 
because... I think Sandra... Oh, go ahead, sorry. Well, no, I was just going to say that she resigned from the DNC. She was the vice chair. That was how a lot of people became familiar with her first. And Mm -hmm. she wanted to do that so that she could be outspoken and support Sanders. But additionally, she wanted to distinguish him from the hawkish foreign policy of Hillary Clinton. And she went on the campaign trail and showed up at several rallies and what she was attacking and what she does. And, and you may say it's a distinction without a difference. We can debate that later. But she calls them regime change wars. That's the phrase that she uses. She says she's opposed to them. And so she used her platform and her knowledge of and her experience in Iraq to attack uh, military U.S. military adventures that were ongoing during the 2016 election. And mm-hmm. I think and that Libya. Very effective. And she's attacked what happened in Libya too. Yeah. She's attacked that as well. But sorry to continue. No, um, I mean that's basically it. Uh, I have something fun. Um, unless you well, there's one more. Well, there's one more thing that I want to add actually, and I think that this deserves criticism. Um, again, like I think this is something that Tulsi should be interrogated about as well. And that is, a, she voted for um, like a bill, or it was either a resolution or a bill, but basically the the intent of it was to make it more difficult for refugees to come into the United States. I think that happened in 2015. I think she should absolutely answer for that. Like, cause every time I say something about her that's not hateful on Twitter, I get all these people like, what about this? What about this? I'm like, dude, I agree with you. Like, yeah. you should answer about that. But like, that's not what I was talking about. Um, I'm talking I, about like some of the disingenuous attacks on her. I think um, we have to challenge people to see that the media is so horrid when it comes to covering what positions that really amount to anti-imperialism, honestly. Like, mm-hmm. she's taking positions that are anti-empire. And because she is, she's smeared very disingenuously. And I think people should understand that there's a, there's a tension. If you're a left-wing journalist, or even just plain old left-leaning, if you don't, aren't, aren't, aren't that hardcore, there's a tension. You know, do you allow the media to disingenuously smear someone because they have politics that involves opposing war and interventions, or um, do you try to have a more complex take and assessment of that campaign so that you aren't sacrificing what could be gained by having someone who can speak to voters about these critical issues? No, I agree completely. And, <laughs> um, and again, like I know there's people out there that are probably like, well, what about this about Tulsi? And like, look, I think she should have to answer for everything. But you know what? I think let her answer it. Like, let's give her the opportunity to answer for it instead of attributing things to her that either she's never said or never done or just writing her off completely. Um, if she was some candidate that was really close to Wall Street, um, that was like really close to the defense industry, I'd say, fuck her, you know? But she's not. She's somebody who shows some potential. Um, therefore, I, I want to wait and see. And I don't think that, and I think that that's okay. And I don't like this idea of like shaming people into keeping their mouths shut or shaming people into hating her. And that's what I feel like that's what's what's happening on the left right now. Is people are like, it's like a red line for some reason. People are just like, how dare you not hate her? Like this that's is what... kind of the attitude that I'm seeing. And it's really, really um it's just it's it's just it's unfortunate and it doesn't help anybody. This is what's happened in the last weeks. And maybe listeners of our show have witnessed it. Uh Maybe they have recognized the dynamic, but it's affected me. I believe it's probably affected you. If you want to do journalism, 
on people who are affiliated with the Sanders wing of the Democratic Party. If you want to do journalism on potential progressive or left-wing candidates who may run for president, it's open season. You can say just about whatever you want. You can publish whatever bullshit you want about those campaigns. But if it's someone who the center-left or the establishment of the Democratic Party plan to look to as the darling or charismatic person that is going to lead the party against Donald Trump in 2020, you better sit on your hands, don't pick up a pen, don't type anything on your keyboard. We don't want to know what you've read about their record, their campaign contributions. We don't want to hear a thing that's critical because it's going to make it impossible for us to challenge Donald Trump. Exactly. It's as basic as that. Yeah, that's those are the rules, guys. <laughs> so a couple things to joke about and laugh in the last few minutes here. Um, I've got two quick things. One involves me and one involves I really loved this, Rania. So Sam Sachs flagged this and I know you talked or have seen it. I think our listeners just deserve to know how how, how fun it is. So <laughs> Caroline Orr is this like Russia gator and and she said to her followers after Tulsi announced that she was running that they had set up a crowdfunding page because we've been worried about her for months. Our goal is to go to her district because some of her constituents and people who know her, her family, have some interesting stories to tell. And I love Sam Sachs' response. Uh, he's a journalist <laughs> nice with the DC Sentinel. Of all the Russiagate grifts, trying to crowdfund a vacation to Hawaii is the best I've seen. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think that we should all start doing this. Like, I have there's um, there's a story uh, that I really need to get to the bottom of in like uh, let's say Jamaica. <laughs> you know, you know what? There's a resort in Jamaica. I gotta go investigate it. Uh, I'm think I'm gonna crowdfund. Yeah, it's people a, have actually donated. To it's exploiting people. It's exploiting um, its workers, and uh, but I'm gonna stay there for like three months just in. Uh, well, to investigate. Well, I want to investigate something. I just, but yeah, that's awesome. I want to go on a vacation to Hawaii to investigate <laughs> Tulsi Gabbard. It's amazing. Uh, and then the last thing is this: this thing that happened to me, um, and I'll, I'll I'll be restrained and and respectful of people and not go too overboard with this, but I. Uh, there, there was a vote on Russia sanctions in the past week, and uh, this ties into what we were talking about with Aaron Matei last week. Uh, so there's this documentary apparently called Active Measures. I've never seen it. It's got to be Russiagate uh, nonsense and, uh, and just a lot of hype. And so anyways, the account tweeted that Bernie was the one Democrat not to vote to keep sanctions on Deripaska. He also voted against Russia sanctions and Magnitsky. Senator Sanders won't stand up to billionaires in Russia, and he wants you to believe he'll stand up to them in America. Hashtag fraud. And so I just reacted. What I thought was a reasonable reaction. I said, Bernie Sanders is an American politician whose responsibility is to American citizens who endure class war from American billionaires. Why should standing up to Russian billionaires be his priority or any U.S. politician's priority, for that matter. And then Charles Pierce, who is this old-school liberal, has-been writer over at the GQ magazine, 
who writes. And I mean, it's like, I don't know how familiar people are with writers out there, but it's like T-Bog. It's like T-Bog minus the snark. It's like um, some of the snarky stuff at, at Wonk, at Wonkette, but without any of that snark. It's just like curmudgeon -y, angry. I'm tired that the Democratic Party is evolving with the Sanders wing, and I'm not going to be dragged with it kicking and screaming. I'm going to fight it tooth and nail. And he said, this is Bernieism." <laughs> and then, I kid you not, after that, I, the floodgates were just open. I had never seen so many Russiagators just pile into my feed in like less than an hour. It was like overwhelmed and, and, and they were there and they insisted that this was the, the dumbest, stupidest, craziest take they've read in the last week. It was just, uh, it was just hilarious. Um, and and I, I have to say, I was both amused by their reaction and how they were so viscerally hurt by what I had tweeted. And so, like, like I just didn't know that this was something that could get them wound up so much. Um, and But then I'm also, like, troubled because, like, this... This just seems like a very basic thing to me that like we shouldn't really have much discussion about because I'm, I mean, our domestic politics are more important than like the foreign politics of another country. Yeah, no, I, I mean, like internally, I can't change what the Russian oligarchs do. I mean, I don't like, know. I mean, I've always seen. You know, Bernie Sanders is somebody who definitely supports Russian billionaires uh, over, Amer <laughs> over American billionaires. Uh, no, I mean, look, we knew from this, what this represents to me is like, we knew from, people warned, a lot of people warned, I think we were some of them, that initially when all this Russiagate stuff started, yes. ultimately it would be used, not against, I mean, it's obviously it's been used against Trump, um, but ultimately, you know, it would be used to target progressives. And that's what we're seeing happen. I think we're going to see that happen even more as the next uh, year goes by and like we get closer to the uh, Democratic primary uh, ending is we're going to see more and more of this like Russiagate nonsense used to uh, attack people like Bernie Sanders and basically anybody who hasn't been sufficiently anti-Russia. Uh, and Bernie Sanders, I believe he's voted in some cases on Russia sanctions at times. Like, I, you know, he's he's. He said some now that he said he's played into some of the Russia gate narrative, which is unfortunate. Um, I imagine, I, I hope, I maybe mean, he believes it, maybe he doesn't, but a part, part of it's probably because as a U.S. politician, you're pressured to. Um, but he has played into it, but it hasn't been sufficient. And also, it's something we've seen happening in the U.K. Uh, that whole thing has been used to like go to to basically attack on the left, like the Corbyn wing of the Labour Party, especially. Um, it hasn't really worked that well, but you also have seen like government funded initiatives like the integrity initiative actually being used. It's like funded by the government used to attack Jeremy Corbyn as like an agent of Putin. And I think you're going to see that happen with Sanders. I think you're going to see like Sanders even at one point took a trip uh, at some point when he was younger, he took a trip to the, to, to the Soviet Union. Um, I think you're going to see that brought up. Um, and things like that. You've already seen it with Tulsi, um, and because Tulsi also hasn't been sufficiently uh, pro Russiagate, uh, she hasn't really played into that narrative. She hasn't said that much. You know, she she's against like sanctions on a lot of countries actually. Um, and with Russia, her her position on like election meddling has oh, yeah. been like we need we need to we need to make our elections um, stronger. Like we need to make our election process stronger. 
So she wants, she's been like introducing initiatives to switch to like paper ballots and stuff, or to have like a paper ballot backup. But that's gotten no attention because it doesn't play into the Russia narrative. Um, and she's been, again, interested. my point of bringing this up is that Tulsi's repeatedly been accused uh, of being an agent of Putin. Yes. Um, and Assad. Interesting. Yeah. Um, both an agent of Putin and Assad. I mean, there's no like evidence, but that's what that person wanted to investigate her for. So uh, my point is, is we're gonna, we're definitely gonna see this nonsense be used by people who seem like they have brains because they know. I mean, right now it's like if Kevin and I wanted to make our careers better, we could just start being super anti-Russia. Like that's really all you got to do. Oh yeah, and we could have conversion stories. Look. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I could, I could sell this to like, uh, I could go uh, sell this to the Daily Beast, and then they could publish something about how I, I no longer was uh, willing to dabble in these politics. I mean, it's true. If you're not willing to be sufficiently anti-Russia, if you don't want to be recruited into the new Cold War, um, then you can count on meeting people like Trump micro penis who will jump into your feed and uh, and and. and <laughs> And harass you to no end. And, uh, you know, I know there's a mute button and I can make these people go away, but sometimes you just want to stand back in awe and just be astounded at what is happening. And I, I actually did it. I mean, it's like an op it's like a troll operation. Yeah. I mean, it's so obvious it's a troll operation. And something like, I just, there's all these like people with weird, like, uh, you know, cartoon <laughs> images as their profile pictures who have like four followers and all of their Twitter feed is just like retweeting mainstream media outlets against Russia. And like, that's literally like all they do. And like retweeting like corporate Democrats. And then suddenly they're just like, Rania is a Putin agent. And I'm like, who are you? Are you even a real person? Like, I mean, literally everything that the US is accusing Russia of doing in terms of like having troll farms, which could or could not be true. I imagine it's probably a little true. Uh, everyone has troll farms, but like, I think the US government has them like, you know, times a million. Uh, because that's who comes at me on Twitter, like nonstop, is all of these people who I don't think are actual people. Anyways, the point is, is like the grift, the anti-Russia grift is so fucking real. Yeah. Um, well, we need to be done, but just let me say yeah. that um, I uh, knew who was going to be reading this tweet and responding. So I decided to drop uh, a great Noam Chomsky quote for them to be met with as they uh, tried to rebut uh, what they saw was a what they thought was a dumb take, um, and it, you know it's basically just my favorite thing that he said, and it's something that Glenn Greenwald likes a lot and had popularized, and it's it's always stuck with me that you know that we're primarily responsible for the actions of our own government, and we um, are you're constantly asked as an American to denounce the atrocities of other foreign governments when your own government is con continuing to commit atrocities of their own. And so anyways, um, we'll have more to say about that. In future yeah. Episodes. You know, we know who would love to, you know, who loves to say that what you just said, Putin. you know, who loves that? <laughs> yeah. How'd you know? Cause, cause we're both agents Rania. So our minds are like on yeah, the same true. wavelength. That's true. <laughs> All right. On that note, on that note, we are out of time. We'll be back with next week with more stories of our convergence from anti-Russia gate that throw. Uh, in the meantime, have a great week. We'll be back soon. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. 
for those of you who are patrons, thank you for sticking with us and continuing to be supporters of our show. For those of you who are not patrons but listen to our show every week, and maybe some of you who stumbled on this week's episode, I'd like to take a moment to encourage you to become patrons of our show. At patreon.com backslash unauthorized disclosure, you can find our page. Right now we have 193 patrons. We're trying to reach 200 patrons. Every week we have a show with Rania and myself, and often every other show we have guests. And we want to bring people on our show like Aaron Matei, who we had on last week, or Juanildo Birite, who is, uh, was in Brazil. We talked to him about what happened with Jair Bolsonaro being elected in Brazil. Uh, we'll have guests on uh, who typically corporate or establishment media programs probably would not think to invite. Uh, we highlight perspectives that typically would be drowned out in our present media climate. And we like to have conversations that there just really isn't any space for on Twitter or Facebook or other social media platforms. If you try to get into these discussions, you're pounced on, you're silenced, you're told to be quiet, or it's labeled, it's given labels like Bernieism, or you're, you're called a Nasadist, you're called a Putinist. The intention is to make it difficult for you to engage in any discussion about contentious issues, especially those which might threaten people who are in power. So unauthorized disclosure stands up to this dynamic on social media. And as we see the 2020 primary already beginning, even though it's very early in 2019, as we see that this whole election madness is going to engulf us all for probably the next two years, we need to stand together and try to maintain our sanity. And we think that unauthorized disclosure is a very good place for you to turn to if you would like to try to keep some of your sanity, try to not completely lose yourself in all of the madness that is unfolding around you with an election that really should not be the number one priority for us all. And yet we're going to have times where we have to talk about it because of what's happening with the media and because of what politicians are doing and because of how campaigns are coming to the fore and the way others are interacting with each other. So that's a little bit about why I think you should support Unauthorized Disclosure. Again, to all of our patrons, we could not do this without you. And if you are not a patron, please consider supporting us. That address is patreon.com backslash unauthorized disclosure p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com unauthorized disclosure we'll be back next week with another show thank you